This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Today's guest on the Music Buzz is Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Peter Case. The acclaimed musician's latest album is Dr. Moan. And today we'll delve into that, plus his longstanding career, his solo career, his years with the Nerves and the Plimsolls and more. So please welcome to the Music Buzz, Peter Case. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today, man. I'm a fan of your work. You're uh, one of those rare kind of singer-songwriters who's equally adept at crafting literate storytelling lyrics and instantly hummable melodies. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and I love the two songs that I've heard from Dr. Moan. I'm totally stoked to hear the whole thing. Downtown Nowhere's Blues. I love it. It's cool. And I love your piano playing on it. It's it's one of those songs that on first listen, I could say, man, I could hear that covered by people in any number of genres. Totally. Uh, it's like fantastic. That. It's fantastic the way it is. But, you know, it, it's immediately heard it. I could sing along with it. Um, and especially the, have you ever been a trouble, uh, a killer song in a great, great video. I'd say my favorite song of the year that I've heard so far that anybody's done. And I don't like music. I don't like anything. Ask these guys. I'm pretty hard to <laughs> please, like man. He, he didn't tell you, Peter. That's the, this is the only song he's listening to. <laughs> That's <right>. song. <laughs> <laughs> I like how in the room you are on uh, have you ever been in trouble that the, the piano recording is is pretty lovely i mean it really is and uh your voice is, it's right there in front of you it's a, it's a really beautiful track it's raw and intimate it's really good man uh, yeah i mean that was the thing you know this this whole record kind of came out of uh sort of came out of the pandemic because uh that was such a difficult time for everybody but i was sitting here i don't know about you but i'm pretty sure we're probably all in the same boat like you're like all the plans for the year just went away. Yep. We didn't always have plans for the next two or three years, but but it was last for I'm like, oh my God, the plans just went away. This is gonna last at least a year. And I'm like, there's no gigs. And like I'm just like I'm gonna go nuts. And there's nowhere to go. And it's like sounds like a ghost town out here in San Francisco and everywhere, you know, and like, oh my God, you know. So uh and then I look over there and there's like a Baldwin Acrosonic um spin it you know upright piano sitting right over here it's like the the acrosonic's the one that like all the a lot of the piano players in rock and roll like it because it's a real rock and roll piano and uh somebody gave it to me but you didn't record on that for have you no i didn't i didn't i wrote it on that though you know it's in this front of this room you know and i'm sitting here and i'm like oh my god like oh well 
I've always loved playing piano. It's always been sort of my my kick, you know. Like I do it sort of a, for an escape, you know. And I, well, I'm going to play piano every day. I guess that's it. And so I just started playing every all the time. And uh, you know, the people on the street were, you know, people walking by in like the ghost town out there, like, "Hey, man, are you the guy playing piano up there?" You know. And then the neighbors, like, I'm playing the same songs over and over again. The people upstairs are like, "Why? I like that one." You know, it's pretty. So that's the kind of conversation, music business conversations we were having. I like the way you arrange what you play, just on those tracks that I heard from Doc. Dr. Moon. It sounds like like Dane was saying, nice and raw and intimate, but it also, I know listening to you play that you work those parts out and and it's it's really well done. Yeah, I mean I sat here and played and it all came into focus over like a period of I don't know, nine months or something like that. So so it's the first time in a long time I had the opportunity uh to you write the record and learn the songs. And then goes record it all in one thing without having to go on tour. Uh, hmm. You know, in a way that was an advantage because yeah, you could stay focused. And you're right. You know, it really did capture the. You know, it was it's it is an intimate feeling, even though some of it rocks. It rocks in an intimate way. You know, <laughs> you know there's some tracks on the record that rock. You know, it's all the same people playing on the whole record. It doesn't really get. There's only one song with guitars on it. Who do you listen to? Who, what piano players have inspired you? And some of the ones that really inspired me were, uh, you know, guys like Floyd Kramer and stuff like that. But I like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I went out to Benmont Tench's house one time. He's another one, and I I went to his. We both knew this uh, girl um, uh, who carried me out there one day, and we talked about Floyd Kramer, and we played all that stuff. And then uh, I love. Uh, Without Floyd, there'd be no Elton, that's for sure. I mean, those... That's right. And then I love gospel piano and I love blues piano, uh, Otis Mann, but I especially love um, I especially love this guy, Jimmy Yancey. And he's kind of like, yeah, not that many people know him, but you, you might really enjoy it because like his, his, he plays a boogie-woogie player. He was the groundskeeper at the White Sox, at Comiskey Park. Huh. But, but he was a boogie-woogie piano player that pretty much is known for inventing boogie-woogie, like Ahmed Erdogan looked for him and found him and made a record for him and you know and he's really he's really great uh and it's simple and so it's something like some of these guys they come on and they're just like such monsters on the piano like you know uh you know uh ammons and uh you know pete johnson and all that but 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 uh jimmy yancey kind of has this like intimate thing and i think he's the guy that invented you know the old boom doom do 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 yeah. <laughs> oh really that you know pre-fats domino maybe yeah huh? pre-fats domino you know just like you know you listen to robert johnson and you hear dun 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 dun, dun, dun. You know, it's like the guy that pretty much seems like he may have invented that good thing on the guitar that chuck berry used well jimmy Yancey invented the thing that fats domino did i think how cool yeah. is that man it's I got very beautiful big, so i yeah. listen to that you know i like that i like monk because uh yeah yeah, oh, yeah. he's so mm -hmm. beautiful and like he there's just something about it that's so fresh and so on. I just love his music. And I like the solo monk records. You know? Are you a Terry Adams fan? Because he's pretty monk oriented. Terry Adams. Adams is great. Yeah, I love the way he plays. We just did a record a little while ago. It was like a tribute to uh, one of the songs our NRBQ did. We, Don't knock on my door. It's on YouTube. It's on Spotify, yeah. you know. Oh, cool. Yeah, we did. I did that one, played the piano on that. And uh, I mean, yeah, he's great. Did you amble in, into the doors of uh, Billy Payne and Mac Rebenek? Oh, God, Mac Rebenek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'm a big fan of that, too. And uh, 
love that. I love that that solo boogie woogie record he made that you could get back in the eighties. I don't know if you can still get it. It was um, Dr. John plays Rebenek or Rebenek plays Dr. John. Or I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Who's the girl that's burning up YouTube right now? She sits down with really classical chops that plays this insane boogie woogie. I don't know who it is. No, but you check it out. If you just type in girl playing boogie woogie, I mean, she'll she'll be at the top of the list. But hmm. you know, as someone that plays piano myself and, and enjoys, you know, over the years emulating people like Leon Russell and, and Elton John, this woman's got some hands. It's amazing. So, Peter, when I was reading through your uh, your bio and stuff, obviously, uh, that Wendy had sent over, there's just so much in there. You know, I read a lot of bios because I do, you know, marketing, PR stuff, promoting shows and bands. But, you know, the things that stuck out to me is like blues as a kid, street singing in San Francisco, grew up in Hamburg, New York, you know, in, in part of the punk rock movement and singer songwriter. It's like. It's like you're like the, you know, the vegetable soup of music. Genre jumper. <laughs> yeah, man. Which is soup, but it but it works. And it's not like, it's not like, a, it's kind of been your thing. And I guess my question is, is that on purpose? Or is it just kind of just who you are, you know? Here's the thing, man. It kind of is who I am. Because here's what, here's the deal. It's like, I started out when I was a kid, late 60s playing, you know. And so there was... Like a really like in 1968, I was 14 and I was listening to Taj Mahal and I was listening to the Birds and I was listening. They were Birds were doing country. I was listening to the Incredible String Band. I was listening to John Wesley Harding, which was the first Dylan record I actually bought when it came out. I had the other ones, and so I'm listening to all that kind of stuff. And then I'm also listening to Silent Way by Miles Davis. Oh, I yeah. loved all this kind of stuff. I love it all those too. Yeah, that's a great. I was hanging out this record store with us woman mrs cox you know and she was like she had a little record store in hamburg and we, we would hang out over there and i thought you know she's like an old lady like she was probably like 32 you know oh and, yeah you know, right. you know, she was really beautiful and she had like you know like this uh you know it's b52 kind of thing going on and and uh and uh but she would turn me she turned she was going out with freddie green at the time Oh wow! Chink, and, uh, chink, chink, chink! Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The greatest yeah. guitar player for Count Basie. Yeah. So she she would uh, talk to me about. Well, she knew him any. I don't know. You know, I was too young to really know what the hell was going on. But <laughs> she turned me on to a lot of music, and uh, so that was the start of it. And so I loved Dylan, and I also loved rock and roll. You know, and my big sisters were like Elvis people. I was the youngest kid in the family, so I grew up in a house filled with Elvis and. Ray Charles and uh, the Everleys and all this kind of stuff that these teenage kids had when I was little. And so I grew up in it. I get out to California and playing on the street and I'm like, it was always about songs really. And so I started trying to learn songs and to play songs and the nerves was like a real basic version of songwriting. And like, I threw over a lot of things that was influenced by to be a nerve. The one guy in the nerves was just like really focused. It's got to be two minute songs, like really melodic, get right to the chorus. I go, what, a, you know, he goes, everything else is terrible. You know, that's the way you know, the punk rock era, you know, 1974, everything else is crap. I go, well, what about, you know, the band or, you know, oh, the band, you know, they're no good. But what about Bob Dylan? Ah, forget that. He used to be great, but he's not great. You know, this kind of thing. But I didn't agree with that, but I jumped, I threw it over because I wanted to learn how to play bass and learn how to play in bands. And so I really did learn how to write songs and play in a band, you know, like, you know, and work uh, with people. And that's what the nerves was. But it, I was, as the, as the, the nerves broke up and I wanted to put together a band that could like do what the nerves were doing songwriting, which was like very um, uh, melodic and simple songwriting really. But 
also be able to blow the roof off the place as a band. And that's what the plimsolls were about was, yeah. nerves, you know, the nerves could write the songs, but we were like kind of more, um, we, we weren't as strong live as the plimsolls. You know, we, we put together a band that could really rock the house. And we did that. You sure and did. Also yeah. had the songs, you know. Well, I was watching the footage of you at the Hollywood Heartbeat in 1980, um, <laughs> the Souls, and it was really good, man. It was really good to. You guys were rocking, man. Yeah, we were really rocking. It was we could project rock and roll. That's what that band was about, you know. Like we just knew how. But, to... but you also had the sophistication of Elvis Costello and and uh, the cars kind of permeating through there. It wasn't just you know raw in your face punk. It was songwriting yeah, right. was Songs. good. That's exactly yeah. right. And so that's the thread that goes through the whole thing. And then yeah. and then finally, like when I left, the, like, you know, the Plimsolls like added more influences to the music. Like the, the, the Nervous were like a real fast version of like Motown and Burt Bacharach and, and the Stones or something. But then uh, the Plimsolls let in like sort of like folk rock and soul music. And then when I left the Plimsolls, I was like just letting in all, uh, once again all the music I loved. I grew up on Mississippi John Hurt and Muddy Waters, but also like jazz and all this stuff and i started putting it all together you know so i've just i've just been following the um that thing but it, to me it doesn't really feel so much like genre jumping as it just feels like um, unraveling the mysteries of music and mm. getting close always trying to like uh tune into the wavelength of where the songs are coming from and some of the great artists of all time it's you know bob dylan's always done that neil young's always done that i i applaud you for doing that i mean you know always th this record's you know i mean there's folk, gut bucket blues, rocket, rockabilly, power pop, uh, piano pounding poetry. I mean, it's all cool stuff, man. Everything that you've done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like you follow, you know, you follow the things that excite you. I mean, there's no point in like, uh, there's, you know, uh, you, you just, you, you, you go run to, you know, it's like run to daylight. You know, I run, you know, follow like what you love, you know, put what, you know, we were told, you know, we used to talk about it and like, it's like, like the great thing a band can do or a, so, a singer can do is like just put everything that you love into a song. The, the thing that you really would you would love to hear. Mm, sure. You know, the, well, what's you, the thing that just blows your mind right now? And then that's what it, we try to do. And you do that also, uh, not only in terms of genre, but in terms of just production and arrangement and choice of instrument. I mean, you listen to a song like Two Angels, which is just beautifully recorded and it's, slicker than other things you know like like uh Intel hotel or something like that you know you 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 play the instruments that work for the song and you don't seem to think about the the albums or you know the albums components melding such that they become a Fleetwood Mac type album you know like some albums sound like they do from front to back and yours don't yours seem to move with the song which is cool this new album's got some variation on it, but it was all pretty much, it's all pretty much the same lineup. But um, I, have a, I know what you're saying. Like some of the records like really cover a lot of ground. Like that record I did with T-Bone Burnett. Like uh -huh. that was like just really a sampler of like all the different kind of music that I was into. And then a record like Blue Guitar, it's kind of a little more focused. And I have this record called Full Service No Waiting. And we, it was kind of like a lo-fi version of a thing that we recorded like in an office room with a kid playing drums on a suitcase and that has like a vibe to it we did it on like a a dot or something like that and it, and it was funky but it had a real vibe to it the whole thing i'm gonna get i'm gonna guess you're a tom waits fan somewhere in there yeah i love waits you gotta be yeah i love waits man right <laughs> you gotta love tom waits he's the greatest 
Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the, the one the one of my favorite records that I I mean I was kind of listening through and, and listened to as much of your stuff as I could. Uh the Let Us uh Now Praise Sleepy John record. Oh, yeah. Man, that's the one that really hit me underneath the stars. You guys need to listen to that record. That's one yeah, that of the, the record, that's, that was one of the records that got nominated for the Grammy. That's one of the mm. best songs I've ever heard. And uh well, thank you, man. Ain't, ain't gonna worry no more it's another great one up there it's a really good record I'd, well thank and, you yeah that's a real stripped down record richard thompson yeah, it's on great. There with me there's oh it's richard other, on it richard thompson's on the first track and there's a couple other there's a couple other tracks there's like norm hamlet from uh merle haggard's band plays on the record a little bit but uh, which was really fun to play with him but but nice. uh basically it's a solo record like those ones i used to yeah. get these records when i was a kid like bert yanch and you would get mm -hmm. like "Don't Bother Me" by Bert Yanch, and it'd just be him playing the whole record, or like uh, "Freewheeling" by Bob Dylan, or one of those early Bob Dylan records. So another side of Bob Dylan, where it's just like him with the guitar, with the songs and the singing. Yeah. Um, and so that's what that I wanted to make a record like that, and so that's because that's what I do on the road. You know, your your music is as diverse as your album covers. I was looking through your album covers today and oh my god there i mean there, there's a lot of great stuff i love some of the urgent doodles you know that you have going on with um with uh sleepy john and then out of nowhere you got this uh six-pack cover it looks like something that r crumb would have done remember uh, that guy's uh, a pretty oh famous yeah artist. r crumb yeah he was great yeah, that's a pretty famous artist named jeffrey valence yeah, well, it, it looks famous, even though it's really quirky and, you know, it's lovely stuff, man. I didn't know his work, but I got hammered for that in, over in England. People are like, if this is what passes for painting in Los Angeles, you know, they should be ashamed. And I don't know, like, you know, well, <laughs> I remember, I remember going to, I, I used to live just north of you in, in St. Catharines, just across the, oh, the, yeah. Yeah, Niagara on the lake. Um, and we would go down to the Albright Knox Gallery. Oh, yeah. Father would, take me down there at age 11 and I would look at a Jackson Pollock, oh, which yeah. is now $30 million per canvas. I look at my first thought was I could do that. <laughs> you know, not, not <laughs> understanding, not understanding the process. Maybe you could, you know, it, but it's yeah. very beautiful, isn't it? Like I used to go yeah. to the gallery too, you know, by the way, the guy that did the latest cover, I don't, uh, is from right near St. Catharines. Um, he's got this thing called Blind Pig. His name's Greg from Blind Pig Press, and you can check him out online. He's, he makes his own fonts. And he's been coming okay. to my wow. – I played at uh, Ani DeFranco's place a few years ago, and he came down from Canada to come to it. I used to watch St. Catherine's Hockey on TV. That's how close – like, you know, Pete and Frank Mahovlich and all that kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, I nice. was super, you know, super into it and uh, in Buffalo. What? What's the uh, what's the font guy the guy that made the fonts? His name Peter. is uh, it's called Blind Pig Press, and he is he the guy that did he draw the piano on the cover too? Yes, he did. I did that picture of the guy inside. It's one of my doodles, but but he uh, he uh, he showed up at my gig um, in one time when I was playing Ani's place, and he had this thing. It was a picture, a really insane picture of me, very visionary, weird picture of me playing outside. You could see a city in the distance, and there's all these waves, and I'm trying to. I'm playing the guitar, but there's a million. It looks like a like a, a hallucination. And I, I said, well, that would be great, but I can't. I would like to use it for the record. I've got it up in the wall here, but I, uh, I said I can't use it because it's a piano album. He goes, no problem. So he made me the piano. You know. 
Like Sig Hatch, his fonts are really cool. You check out blindpigpress.com, I believe. I will, for sure. Can you can you point your camera to that picture that you got on the wall? Um, there a way to do that? It's over in the other room. I could probably. Oh, okay. Never mind. When we get done here, maybe I'll do it. Yeah. Okay. St. Cath Catharines was an interesting time in my life. I was at a, a public school there for the three years I lived there. Um, and one of my classmates ended up being the drum tech for Neil Peart in Rush. Turns out Neil lived. Neil lived 10 minutes away from me and I never met him until years wow. later when we were, we were on the same label together. Wow. And the star man, the naked, the naked guy that I never paid. Um, uh, he's from St. Catharines too. So Who is? The, the, the guy that plays, that plays the part of the star man for Russia's oh, okay, love. Okay, yeah. he, he's from St. Catharines. Wow. So I have nothing but fond memories. I used to, you know, I used to pick strawberries out in Grimsby and. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful part of the country. I mean, it's just right over the border from where I grew up. I mean, it's basically the same part of the country. There's just a border in the middle of it. But yeah. uh, I used to go up there a lot. I used to hitchhike up into, uh, I used to go over the Peace Bridge when I was a teenager. Hitchhike yeah. up the Peace Bridge and get picked up and drive up to, we'd go up to Stratford or. Uh, yeah, beautiful, yeah. Different places up there. there. There was, I used to play on, you know, play different coffee houses and stuff up there and uh, travel around, hitchhike around up there. It was always fun, you know. Did you ever play the riverboat? Was it? A time when you were yeah i did you did yeah cool yeah That's I, think, cool. I think we're talking about the same place um i played this weird um dockside place in uh somewhere up near stratford i forget so, what it was called but i played i mean i played a million gigs in toronto going back to, i opened up the crash and burn club in 1977 with the nerves i don't know that first club, punk man. rock club of uh toronto <laughs> That was the first time my parents came to see me play, like drove up from Buffalo to see me at the Crash and Burn Club. It was like, <laughs> How'd that go over? Um, yeah. I mean, they were happy that I was still alive and I was yeah, working. Right. <laughs> so speaking of that, I mean, you've been a lifelong touring artist. I mean, obviously, I look, looking at stuff, I mean, you, you guys were with the Ramones and Devo. And so, you know, over the years, I mean, what are some of your fondest memories of just touring in general, whether that be touring with specific acts like that or on your own or, you know, kind of, Go down that road with us a little bit. Those that those things were amazing because you didn't know really what was going on. Like it, when I when we played with Devo and uh, Perubu, we, we were just like kind of stumbling into around on this like independent tour that nobody knew anything about, you know. And so it was like a very mm -hmm. you know we were an indie record like with no record company support, and we got on the phone and booked some shows, and then we just come into Cleveland and the opening act is Devo at Pirates Club. It's like, oh my God, these guys are incredible. And then we did two nights there and the next night was Perubu and they were just both incredible. And then the dead boys came to the show, you know? And so uh -huh. that was very wow. exciting. Touring with the Ramones was exciting. We just did it for a, a brief part in the Rocket to Russia tour. We played okay. up in, uh, we played the Midwest and then we went down and played Texas with them. It was really exciting and fun. I mean, what year would that have been? 77. May or June or July, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of 77. Wow. So that was super exciting. Um, every once in a while, you have those nights on the road, like you go, oh, this is why this is why I tour, you know. Sometimes it's so fun and you go, oh, this is so much fun, you know. I mean, a lot of the slogging is, uh, I mean, usually it's when you meet other people and they show up and you have like uh, an interplay maybe with the other act on the bill or something and it's pretty magical, you know. Yeah. So there's been a lot of different experiences. We you know we played gigs on the road with Tom Petty's band, and we played with, um, but solo I played with everybody too. I op opened shows. I've I've opened shows for rock bands, you know, as a solo artist. 
because I grew up uh, on solo yeah. players too. You know, I saw Lightning Hopkins play and people like that. James Taylor too, for that matter, who was a great solo act. I saw him play solo or John Hammond Jr. or uh, all those guys. They would play solo and like you could. I, I saw I saw John Hammond Jr. open for a rock band and he just blew the place away. And so yeah. I got into, I, I played with the replacements. I opened up a show for them solo. I opened up for Who's yeah. Do solo. That's a tough one. Yeah, those are tough. Yeah. You know, they're good though. <laughs> it all makes sense. I mean, I, I, you know, knowing those audiences and knowing your music, I mean, it does, that's the beauty of what you do is that you're really able to meld into a little bit of everybody. And it's not like, why the hell is this? This doesn't make sense. It, it, Especially the replacements. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a tough. You know, that was when I was drunk and, and they were sober. It was the strange part about that period of time. <laughs> I didn't know they were ever sober. <laughs> they were when I played with them, I was like drunk out of my mind, and they were like, uh, like Paul particularly was like really, really clear-eyed and sober, and and it was, and they were great. Uh, you know, super great. But you know, one of the secrets to what I do, I think, some other people can relate to this, is I I was a street musician as a teenager. That meant you, you had to, you had, you had, you were out of the corner. It was in San Francisco, and these people would come down. They'd be all walks of life, from like tourists to the strippers to the soldiers and Marines going by, and like you know, the, everybody's going by out there. And Broadway and North Beach, and you'd have about ten or fifteen seconds to get their attention to get to play a song, maybe make some money off of them. And so you had like it was like a, a it was like a training ground for being rejected, but also for cutting through. And also, just that moment when you open up your guitar case on a city street and you pull the guitar out and you start to play, it's like there's 15,000 pounds of pressure to not do that. It's like you're not supposed to be doing that. And, you know, you, you start doing it and then you're like, it, in a way, I got more comfortable playing than I am, like even usually just hanging out at a party or something. I, I can just go out. I can talk to people. Go, it gave me so much playing on the street. And what it didn't give me was much money, but what it really gave me was like a great experience for play. And we would play. I would get out there at noon and play until two in the morning. No kidding. Day yeah. after day after day. I did it for a couple of years. Get your chops together. Yeah, that's all I got. You know, you get your fingers you know, you're all, and your you know, your voice. Your voice, yeah. Confidence, too. You know, the confidence and having the balls to go out and do that. I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah, it gives you that confidence. Yeah. It gives you a thing that cuts through. They say that, look, I, I would sing at Broadway in Columbus, and they said up by the coffee gallery, which was two blocks away, you could hear me on a Friday night, you know, all the way up there, like, you know, <laughs> singing over the traffic. No no amps or nothing. Well, Bruce Coburn, who I mentioned earlier, um, one of my favorite singer-songwriters from Canada, he, he bussed in Paris for two years. I bet know? he did, yeah. yeah. Ramwin Jack used to busk. I'll, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people... Bruce lives here now. Does he? Does he really? He did a couple years ago. I met him right before the pandemic at a. Um, he was reading from his book at a reading, and uh, I went to it and talked to him for a while. Yeah, you know, he's one of those guys. I just talked to him like I didn't. That's really a good book, the Rumors of Glory book that he wrote. Yeah, he's one of those guys. I just talked to him like we just started talking like we had a whole like like we'd been talking for years. Like we just started talking. It was fun to talk to him. One thing I, I, that I read about about you that I, that I wanted to ask about, since you moved back to San Francisco, it said you've been attending the St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church. Are you still attending there? No, I'm not. I, I was doing that right up until the pandemic. And any weekend that I was in town, I was doing it. They're great. They're a very beautiful church with a great message and a great musical 
presentation. And uh, they're every week. You can go to them at uh, St. John Coltrane. Uh, you can Google it. And they, they're a, they're, they have a service every week, and I think it's online. But I haven't, they have a new piano player now. I, I couldn't make it for a while. and I mean, I, they weren't doing services through the pandemic. Now, at that thing, like I, I just kind of happened into it. They had a great piano player who moved over to Sacramento. And so I showed up one day, me and my wife went to it. Denise says, the, you know, Archbishop King is up there is his name, Archbishop King. And he, Archbishop says, uh, does anyone here uh, play piano? <laughs> they was like horn players and conga players and a bass and a choir. And, it's, you know, and I didn't raise my hand. My wife just takes my hand and pushes it up. <laughs> so they go, you, come on up. <laughs> no, no pressure there. So uh -huh. I started playing, and, and it was uh, so great. And they asked me to come back again the next week. Now, I'm not really a, a jazz piano player, but I can play rhythm piano. And so, and I started to learn how to, you know, stack those chords so you could play that modal music with them. We would do Love Supreme and Lonnie's Lament and sure. Alabama and Spiritual and um, Resolution. One time I go, man, it's really hard playing that Resolution. And the guy says, uh, one of the pastors says, well, maybe you're not resolved enough. Oh, God. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, don't ever, they never tell you what key. They never tell you anything. They would, they would just tell you the name of the song. And, like, they were jazz people, you know? Mm. And so they don't tell you what to play. They never tell you. Uh, you just play. And then after about two months of going there every Sunday, the bass player turns around to me and says, you're starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. Well, that's a good thing because I've been here for eight weeks. <laughs> no shit. I'm hoping so. <laughs> but that was great. A great experience for me. And like playing that much every week for was for a couple hours. Like, you know, it's not a it's not like a jazz mass where they just have a little bit of jazz. Like they played a, a lot of Coltrane every week. You know. Wow. Man. And so they could play for a couple of hours. You know, but and, and uh, it, it really. I think you can hear that on this record that it built up my. Uh, I'm very thankful for it because it really built up my ability to play the piano with, with some power and consistency a little bit. Did you yeah. go back and did you go back and re-listen to the, the Coltrane stuff to, oh, yeah. to bone up for that? I bet you did. Oh yeah. I had to bone. Yeah. So I start, you know, yeah, definitely. I, I went back and I listened to all of it and a lot of other things too, but I, I definitely listened to McCoy Tyner. Oh, Cause sure. like he invented a way of playing with John Coltrane that really nobody else had done before. It was that, fourths you know and he stacks mm -hmm. these chords and they're modal but they move and you can yeah you can, it, once you learn it you can kind of like go up and down and play all sorts of scales and music and melodies with the chords and this whole thing i mean he was a classically trained great you know uh, virtuoso pianist but um i did borrow his uh yeah i mean i had to uh to do that with them yeah that's cool thank you for sharing yeah, I'm good. gonna have to get online and check that out. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, the yeah, John absolutely. Coltrane, St. John Coltrane, and they have beautiful icons there. They have this. Um, uh, Mark Dukes is a painter that paints icons, and he paints these um, amazing icons of like Black Jesus and uh, Coltrane's saxophone. But he's like Coltrane's wearing robes, and it's like a, it's like a icon of an Orthodox church, but it's Coltrane with like flames in his saxophone. And very oh, man. beautiful, man. They're really, That's really, wild. really amazing. Yeah, you'd love it, man. You should look check. That's He's somebody cool. to check out too. Mark Dukes, D O O X. He's -O -O -X. really a far out artist. Really great. He's a radical. I mean, they're a radical church. You know, they're a rad they're radical uh, social movement. It's Love Supreme. You know, One Mind, and uh, they're they're uh, it's a very serious, very beautiful group of people. I got a lot out of it.
I was very thankful okay. to be there. So speaking of, you know, performing and whatnot, what was the first show you went to and, and paid to go see as a fan? Uh, can you tell us about that? My sister took me to see Grateful, the Grateful Dead in 1967. Okay. And we saw Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead in Toronto at O'Keefe Center in July of 67. I played there. Wow. <laughs> Did you go wow. to that? I played there. I played the O'Keefe Center. Oh, you played O'Keefe Center, yeah. It's a great wow. place. Well, I saw the Grateful Dead play there. You know, it just blew my mind completely. I was only 13, you know. 1967. Okay. Wow. And then later on that year, later on that year, my mother and father took me to a bar in Buffalo called the Royal Arms and saw the Paul Butterfield Blues Band play. Oh, wow. Michael Bloomfield. Yeah. It was right after Bloomfield had left. So it was Elvin Bishop was playing lead. It was the rest of the, like, the band was incredible. And Paul Butterfield was a huge influence on, like, Sam Lay was Sam Lay playing? No, it was Philip Wilson, and and uh, he's an incredible drummer. He played with uh, he played on a few albums with Butterfield right around then. There were two guys in the band that were from the Chicago Art Ensemble. It was Gene Dinwiddie and Phil Wilson, and uh, and Philip Wilson's an incredible drummer. And then they had uh, Mark Naftalin and Elvin Bishop, and David Sanborn was in the horn section, but like nobody knew who he was at that time. And um, they were great. You know, they were so powerful. And it was a, like they call it a show bar where like the stage is right behind the bar. There's like a liquor bar there. And then up above it, you know, those kind of places, you know. I was so, just saying, how, how clever. And they would play there for a week. You know, they, like bands would come through to play the Royal Arms. Like, like Miles Davis would play the same club or... Uh, you know, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley played there, Chuck Berry even played there, uh, Howlin' Wolf would play there, but I never saw any of them there. I only saw Butterfield. But it was so, so moving, man. I was just a kid, but to see him come out and like, uh, just, the, just the whole presence of it and how seriously, you know, what a throwdown it was, you know, it was, it was, it just blew my mind, you know. So, so I saw that, but I'm trying to remember when I first shelled out my, oh, I'll tell you when I first paid some money to see somebody that I can really remember. San Francisco, I'm playing on the street, and we somehow see in the newspaper, Doug Som is coming to the boarding house with the quintet. And oh, yeah. Sir Douglas oh, Quintet. Doug Somm, man, the Sir Douglas Quintet. We, you know, my friend was from Texas, these guys that we had played on the street with. We had a street band, you know, and this guy's from San Antonio. So he said, we go, we got to So we worked really hard and saved a bunch of money. Like, I hope there's still some tickets left, man. And we get down to the boarding house with our, we played all day to get, where's the money? Maybe a couple of days to get the money for tickets. And then we go down there, tickets were like five bucks or something, you know, they were back in those days, or maybe that was even high. We get in, like, I hope there's still seat, you know, I hope there's, we can still get into the show. And we get down there and uh, where is everybody? And then we go in and there's like nobody there. And then we go down and there's like about 10 other people come in and I'm sitting right in the very front row and Doug Som with Augie Myers and the whole original Sir Douglas Quintet comes on and just blows the place away, puts out an incredible show. I'm just sitting there right in front of him watching the show. She's about a mover. Yeah, she's come on. She's about a mover and all yeah, man. Stuff, man. Mendocino and she's about yeah. a mover and all this. Come on. And then the horn band comes on and Doug's playing like, you know, they're doing like nitty gritty and all that stuff that's on that record. Uh, the, um, Doug Som and friends dealers blues. And it was just incredible with a horn section. He's playing this like T-bone Walker kind of lead. It just blew me away. And there's maybe by the end of the show, like 15 people in the club. 
And he put on a great show, too. It was very, very heavy. But that was, a, I don't know why that show was, uh, you know, you never know in music why a room looks like that. But <laughs> he's one of the greats, man. Now, what about a time when you were, you know, in your career on stage and kind of a pinch me moment, I guess you could call it, you know, any, any stories like that you can share, you know, on oh. stage with somebody or kind of, you know, whatever it might be over the years. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things there where it kind of blows your mind. Some of them you look back and are kind of pinch me moments, you know, or like, you know, I wrote songs with, uh, at one time I went over to Willie Dixon's house to write songs with him. Okay. And, that's pinch me moment. Come on now. We didn't actually come Jeez. out with a thing, but, but it was just an incredible day. You know, I spent over at his house playing piano. He would have me play piano and he would write lyrics to the things I was playing. And he would tell, he told me all this stuff. And so that was super heavy. Um, no doubt. And then, uh, you know, I mean, it was fun, you know, we like, Chairman with Tom Petty. We closed on the whiskey. We had this big sold out show, the Plimsolls at the whiskey. And then Tom Petty came out and uh, sat in with our band. That was a lot of fun. But, you know, Tom Petty uh, was somebody we really liked a lot. I'm but I'm trying to think, you know, uh, I wrote songs with John Prine, and that was a very. Moving. Whoa. So tell me about that. No, I, I, play, I did a little recording with John, too. He was one of the sweetest guys I ever met. But I haven't seen him for years, but I did. I can't remember. I met him out there on the road. Yeah, let's see what happened. You know, I was up in Canada on the Blue Guitar tour, and I had the Blue Guitar, my little group, you know, playing that stuff. And we ended up backing up this guy named Jim Rooney, who's a, a producer. He's produced John's last record, but he uh, he's made a million different records. Jim Rooney, he's the guy that started the um, Newport Folk Festival. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's one of the guys, you know. And uh, Did you ever play the Mariposa? Folk festival in Toronto. I did play that. Yeah, that was a fun one. I definitely played that. That was a super great moment. So we were up there. Yeah, I met Prine, and then I was playing the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. And uh, I'm just on tour. It was about six months later, and then there's a red, the front table is reserved at uh, at the Bluebird, and it turns out it's just for John Prine, who's alone, and he just comes in and, and like sat there and like had a bottle and he sat there and just watched my show from right up front. And uh, I was just playing alone, you know, at that night. And uh, I was kind of nervous, but then, you know, I figured, well, he came to it. So uh, we ended up talking. And we, uh, I mean, I wrote, I wrote, went over to his place and we wrote, we, we wrote a few songs. Had those come out? I mean, yeah, he, he recorded one and I recorded the other one. The one's called The Wonderful 99 and the other one's called... Uh, space monkey and he recorded that one on his live on tour record and I, yeah and he had a whole rap about it and, you know you know <laughs> yeah i mean writing with him was like so you know it's like what do you have to do i mean i just basically we just laughed you know and he uh he would he had these amazing he would you know we, we'd be sitting there and he we were worked late at night and uh he, he you know nothing much would be going on and then he'd go what if you wrote a song what if, why don't we write a song about an imaginary... Let's write a song like Sink the Bismarck about an imaginary group of heroes. And so we wrote Wonderful 99, you know? Like, how did he know that Sink the Bismarck was my favorite song when I was uh, nine years old? <laughs> Sink the Bismarck by Johnny Horton. So he goes, but he didn't even check with me to fail. But let's write a song like Sink the Bismarck. I'm like, oh, right on, man. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so I was totally into that. 
And then another time I'm over there and he goes, he was like, he cooked and he was doing the dishes and we're just hanging out and all this stuff. And it's like really late at night. And he goes, let's write a song about the first monkey that went in. He's just kind of looking with a far out look in his eye out the window. And he goes, how about a song about a, the first monkey that ever went into space and what he's been doing <laughs> since his 15 minutes of fame ran out. Wow, that's <laughs> perfect. And so we wrote Space Monkey, like you know, like an, after with a, with an, the premise, like the premises were so fantastic, genius that you know they just write themselves after that. And we just sat there and laughed. And then we get done about like you know you get the song done about two thirty in the morning or something like that. And then uh, he'd call his manager on the phone in the middle of the night. I mean that guy was up too, you know. Al Bonetta. Yeah. Al Bonetta. Al, we just wrote a song. You got to hear this. And so I think Al lived nearby. I think he came over. It's like 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and we played him Space my I mean, you know, those guys, it was so goofy, you know. It was like really <laughs> fun and funny, you know. That's great. He, he was such a beautiful guy, man. He really was. It's already hard to listen to Summer's End without now knowing that he's gone. So when you listen to it, it's doubly melancholic. Mm -hmm. He was such a sweet guy, like, you know. Beyond just like what he wrote, which was like some genius. I saw him like before, way before I knew him, I went and saw him do a solo show. He was on tour with Nancy Griffith, mm. playing a big outdoor place in in L.A. I think they just had a car and the two of them were driving around together doing these solo shows. And it was just fantastic, you know. Did you see him do the uh, House of Strombo where uh, George Strombolopoulos, who's one of the better interviewers um, from Toronto, invites people into his home and one night it was uh john prine and in the audience was 80 some year old gordon lightfoot just in the shadows yeah yeah check it out it's on youtube you know just check i it. shared it's a dressing room with john with uh gordon lightfoot and uh, ended up talking to him we had i had this whole adventure with him and his band that was like just so funny man and uh <laughs> you know uh we were up in uh at mountain stage in west virginia and so Red and those guys are like in one room and uh, that's his band leader. And then like uh, he's in another room and, and like the, the, the drama going on between these guys was so intense. You know, um, I can't go into the whole thing now, but it was all about, it was all about tuning. They apparently like sometime like, you know, 30 years, these guys have been together for a thousand years, you know, sort of like 30 years ago or something. They went on some TV, maybe it was like the Smothers Brothers or, or laughing or it was like some <laughs> huge show from like ancient year, you know, Mesozoic era of TV. And they, they were out of tune. That's yeah. never going to happen again. And so like Red's told me the story. And then like a few minutes later, uh, Gordon Lightfoot comes in and goes, you guys guys getting tuned yet and it's like five hours until the show the show's that's <laughs> all we got to start tuning so they start tuning and they've got all these like strobes and all this stuff set up <laughs> and, they, and i go well what's the big problem they go well the real tricky part about it is that gordon always uses a like one of those boop, 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 those little t pitch pipes oh my god that's what he tunes to uh. so, anyhow, so, so so they're in there tuning you know and going on and on and then i and then i'm hanging out with gordon and we're talking for quite a long time and and we had a great time i love talk i love him so much and we were talking and then uh he was telling me like the thing he's most proud of is uh early morning rain recorded by both dylan and elvis so i hear you yeah <laughs> i guess i'd be proud of that i guess i'd be proud of that too but then he goes uh, so we're talking for one he goes you ever sing any barbershop, Peter? 
And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden, that story about the pitch pipe, beep, beep, beep. Like they always used to use it in barbershop, like, <laughs> yeah, get your notes. He, he, uh-huh. he used to sing barbershop, apparently. But uh, so they had this whole thing going on about the tuning. And then the guys in the band were like, he, like, he, it, we're on the road with him. He's, he's a pilot. And, uh, you know, it's like harrowing, you know. Oh, <laughs> shit. He's there. He, he's the band's pilot. Yes. He had like a two. A, he had this big two engine thing, and he's like apparently like not afraid of any weather, and, you know. Oh my <laughs> god! No way, man. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like, he's the kind of guy he is. Though he's just like, you know, we're gonna fly, and like I've got it to get got my own plane, and we we fly in and fly. <laughs> oh my gosh! But I got I performed with him, and you know that was that was a pitch me, mom, at the whole thing, and, and so that was really fun, you know. That's awesome. That's yeah. What a great songwriter! I didn't know that he flew planes. I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently he scared the hell out of everybody. That's the last thing you want. You don't want the LV to be flying the plane too, man, if you're in the yeah, band. Yeah, you know. Uh, you guys were a little yeah. out of tune tonight. You wouldn't want me doing that. <laughs> you ever flown upside down? Hey, <laughs> yeah, I know Petty and those guys used to fly to their gigs, and uh, the pilots used to play games with them once in a while, like put it in a dive and stuff, you know, to scare Tom you know, that's kind of, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> I had a guy do that to me once. It Did wasn't you? fun. Yeah. How are you aware of the word plimsoll? It was a Jeff Beck tune. Yeah. Jeff Beck had it. And it's also a Navy term. It's also the British term for a running shoe. It's yeah. The same thing. Yeah, that's what Jeff Beck was getting at. It's a yeah. Navy term. The plimsoll mark is on the side of ships. So we put that on the front of the record. I wish I wouldn't have named the band that. Why? Nobody knew what it was, you know? Like to me, it was just, a, I like the word soul in the name, you know? And so I thought it was kind of like the Yardbirds or something, soul, you know, the Yardbirds. It, it, people like the name because it sounded kind of cool and everything, but like, I always like, everybody else was called like the Cars. Or the, it caught my attention because of that well, Jeff go. Beck, Jeff Beck Truth record. Yeah, know, I love had Jeff the same Beck, song. man. God, there's yeah. another one, man. What a great musician. Oh, geez. Well, uh, the only, the only context that I know Plimsoll in is uh, having lived in England um, during the 60s when it was still quite Dickensian and you could still at a boys' school get caned for any malfeasance. Yeah, yeah, you could get six of the best and still have to shake the guy's hand and thank thank him for the admonition. Um, but yeah, the, the gym teacher... Tro- thank you, sir. Give uh, How about another? Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. No, no thanks. thanks. They, used to, they used to hit us with rulers at my school. No, the gym teacher used a size 12 plimsoll. <laughs> Oh, really? Shit. Get out of here. Oh. That's no good. At our school, they had the ruler, you know. Our principal had, he used to have a a whacker, a paddle that had holes in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, man. I got that once. I was a quiet son of a bitch after that, boy. (laughs) Kept my mouth shut in class. I quit going to gym after I I saw a few people get that. I would just hang out in the bathroom and smoke cigarettes. And then uh, one day, some kid comes down there, his case in here, and they, I go, yeah. And they go, they want you down at the gym. Um, they, they're giving them, give you three whacks for every day you miss gym. You've missed like 50 days. Oh, shit. They're going to beat me <laughs> to death. Down uh, the- no kidding, <laughs> man. You spend the rest of the day and the next day whacking you. Ouch. Yeah, pr- principal drilled out the paddle what, to cut the wind resistance. It made it hurt way more. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. weird. It was a weird thing, but I, I know I can attest that it was not fun. 
Then it worked. Yeah. It definitely worked. I shut up immediately. <laughs> well, as a Canadian in England, I, I, I can't say it was a fun experience, but the art director in me says, yeah, I have been caned. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's an experience, I guess, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> what a planet we live on. That's what Butch Hancock always said. What a planet. What a planet we live on. <laughs> it's crazy, though, isn't it? It's so Indeed. And, I mean, I, I've got kids, and I, I sure don't want them getting caned, but, you know. This has been great, Peter. Thank you so much. Well, great talking us. to you guys, man. Yeah, good luck on this project, man. It's uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of the tunes. It's... Uh, the two that I've heard are absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting the record out there, hitting the road, you know, for a while. But we we appreciate the time. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.